Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Before we start on today's episode, I wanted to update folks. We mentioned previously a couple episodes ago that we are going to be doing a live show on July 5th at Adams National Historical Park in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I just wanted to let folks know that the park has information about that show up on their website now. So you can go to nps.gov slash Adam, which is the Adams National Historical Park website. You can scroll down to the calendar. We're on there. Or it's also on their Facebook at facebook.com slash AdamsNPS. And that show, if you missed the announcement previously, it's going to be on July 5th. It is a daytime outdoor show, 2 p.m., It was a fun time last time we were there, so we're expecting another fun time. Yes, fingers crossed. Whether or not we have any ghosts that get in the machine and mess with recording, I plan to have all kinds of fun. Me too. And now we will get into today's episode. We have gotten a lot of requests over the years to talk about the discovery of insulin, and that's something that was so immediately and dramatically life-saving that it was hailed as a miracle. And that discovery was also deeply contentious. In the words of John McLeod, who was one of the two men who was awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering insulin in 1923, quote, If every discovery entails as much squabbling over priority, etc., as this one has, it will put the job of trying to make them out of fashion. Uh, It is a high drama story when we get to the actual (laughs) discovery of insulin part, but we're going to do this in two parts. (laughs) I feel like so many of our scientific discovery stories go that way that it makes me chuckle that he's like, this one is the most dramatic. I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) Um, We've we've definitely talked about a lot of, of, of fighting among the discoverers of things. This is the first one I personally recall in in the modern era that involved fisticuffs. So uh, we won't get to that part until part two because this is a story that we're telling in two parts. Today, we have a history of diabetes and its treatment in the centuries before insulin was developed, and that is going to include the starvation diets that were included in the years just before insulin was discovered. And the next time we will be talking about insulin including all of that squabbling and the fisticuffs. And we'll talk about how it became a widely available treatment for diabetes, along with some of the developments that have happened since then. And in both parts of this, we're going to be talking about research that involved testing on animal subjects. And in part two, we'll also be talking about the use of byproducts from animals that were slaughtered for food. Okay, so hormones are substances that help coordinate all kinds of complex processes in your body. And insulin is one of the hormones that helps regulate the amount of sugar or glucose in your blood. Your body has to have glucose to live. Most of your cells, and especially your brain, use it for fuel. But it's also really important to have the right amount of glucose circulating in your blood. Having too much or too little can lead to several complications, some of which are life-threatening. At a very basic level, because like Holly just said, these are complex processes. The body's attempts to regulate blood glucose go this way. When your blood sugar rises, your pancreas releases insulin, and that prompts your body to store the extra sugar. Then if your blood glucose dips too low, your pancreas releases another hormone called glucagon, and that prompts your body to release some of that stored sugar. 
There are other systems of the body involved with this, and there are other hormones besides glucagon that can help raise your blood sugar, but insulin is the only one that can really lower it. Diabetes mellitus, which you may have heard pronounced a different way I certainly had up to this point, but that is correct, is a group of conditions that affect the way your body produces or works with insulin. In type 1 diabetes, the pancreas either doesn't produce any insulin or it makes very little, which means that the body does not have a good way to lower blood glucose levels. Although type 1 diabetes can develop in people of any age, it is usually diagnosed in children and young people, which is why it used to be called juvenile diabetes. It has also been called insulin-dependent diabetes. In type 2 diabetes, either the pancreas isn't making enough insulin, although it is making some or the body resists the effects of insulin. So it's also been called insulin-resistant diabetes. Type 2 diabetes has generally been more prevalent in adults, although it's also becoming more common in younger people. And because it's tended to develop during adulthood, type 2 diabetes also used to be known as adult-onset diabetes. There is also gestational diabetes. The hormones involved with pregnancy make the body more resistant to insulin. In most people, the pancreas increases insulin production enough to make up for this when a woman's pregnant, but in others it does not. Most of the time, this resolves after the end of the pregnancy. Today, treating every type of diabetes mellitus generally involves diet and lifestyle modifications along with regular blood sugar monitoring. There are also some oral medications that can stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin or can adjust how the body responds to insulin. And sometimes these steps are enough to manage type 2 or gestational diabetes. But some people with these conditions need insulin therapy as well, and this is especially true the longer someone lives with type 2 diabetes. On the other hand, insulin therapy is always necessary in type 1 diabetes. Before insulin was developed, people with type 1 diabetes typically lived only a few months or years after they started showing symptoms, as the excess glucose in their bloodstream ultimately led to coma and death. Although insulin therapy has existed for less than 100 years as of when we're recording this, people have recognized diabetes for millennia. Ancient and medieval documents have described a group of symptoms that we still know today, including excessive thirst, excessive urination, unexplained weight loss, fatigue, and urine that tastes or smells sweet. And even though these earlier medical writers haven't known what caused all of these symptoms, they've understood that they were all connected to one condition. I don't think I have ever heard the taste part before, and I'm like, gross, how do we know? Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that used to be a, a thing in diagnostic medicine was tasting people's urine. The earliest known mention of diabetes is often cited as Eber's papyrus. This papyrus was written in ancient Egypt in 1552 BCE, but named for George Ebers, who bought it and published it in English and Latin in the 1870s. This mention is a little bit vague, though. The papyrus includes a remedy, quote, to eliminate urine which is too plentiful. And that could be referencing the frequent urination that accompanies diabetes, but it could also be about something more common and relatively benign, such as a urinary tract infection. In what's now India, the physician Sushruta and the surgeon Shakara both described diabetes, with Sushruta noting the difference between what we would describe today as types 1 and 2. We also have a whole episode on Sushruta back in the archive. 
These texts date back to the Vedic period, which is between 1000 and 600 BCE, and they use terms that translate to honey urine or sweet urine disease, and they describe ants being attracted to the patient's urine. In about 400 BCE, Hippocrates described diagnostic criteria for diabetes, although that name had not been coined yet. The criteria were that the person had a history of excessive hunger, thirst, and urination, and that their urine was sweet. And he described this condition as very rare. All of this actually predates the first written descriptions of the pancreas, which, as we mentioned earlier, is the organ that produces insulin. That first description came from Greek physician Herophilus around the 3rd century BCE from terms that meant all flesh. Herophilus did not know about insulin at this point, though. He just described the organ that's the pancreas. Two different people are credited with coining the term diabetes, both of them living in about the 2nd century. One was Demetrius of Apamea, and the other was Aredius of Cappadocia. The word itself is from a Greek word meaning to run through or describing a thing that fluid runs through. In other words, some kind of siphon. So this all goes back to that excessive thirst and urination that are characteristic of diabetes. Eretaeus described it this way, quote, The course is the common one, namely the kidneys and the bladder. For the patients never stop making water, but the flow is incessant as if from the opening of aqueducts. The nature of the disease then is chronic, and it takes a long period to form, but the patient is short-lived if the constitution of the disease be completely established, for the melting is rapid, the death speedy. And then he went on with further description from there. The physician Galen, living in the Roman Empire in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, also described diabetes. He wrote, quote, I am of the opinion that the kidneys, too, are affected in the rare disease which some people call chamber pot dropsy, other, again, diabetes or violent thirst. For my own part, I have seen the disease till now only twice when the patients suffered from an inextinguishable thirst, which forced them to drink enormous quantities. The fluid was urinated swiftly with a urine resembling the drink. He called the condition diarrhea urinoma, or diarrhea of the urine. At about the same time, in Han Dynasty China, Zhang Zhongjing also described the classic symptoms of thirst and excessive urination. And then later Chinese documents also described the phenomenon of sweet urine, with the Chinese term for diabetes translating to wasting and thirsting. Written references continue into the medieval period, including previous podcast subject Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna, writing in 11th century Persia. Medieval Persian writing uses two different terms for diabetes, one that's derived from the word diabetes and one that translates to water wheel. Ibn Sina also described leaving a patient's urine to evaporate and it leaving a sticky, sweet residue behind. Overall, these ancient and medieval writers described diabetes as a condition more often than they described some kind of treatment for it. That's possibly because in what we now know as type 1 diabetes, patients generally did not live very long after being diagnosed. The treatments that did exist were mostly in line with whatever system of medicine was being practiced at a given place and time, including abstaining from or eating more of certain foods, various herbal preparations, and plant extracts. Shashruta, who observed a correlation between diabetes and a person's weight, recommended a healthy, moderate diet and exercise as a preventative measure, although type 2 diabetes can develop regardless of a person's weight. 
And there were also recommendations of things like opium to try to make patients be more comfortable. But it wasn't until later that people started to understand that diabetes did not just cause sugar in the urine, but also caused sugar in the blood and tried to formulate treatments based on that discovery. And we're going to talk more about all of that after we pause for a sponsor break. In the 17th century, people started making some more concrete discoveries about diabetes beyond describing its outwardly observable signs. One was Swiss anatomist Johann Conrad Brunner, who partially removed the pancreases of dogs and then observed afterward that these dogs had an increased appetite, urination, and thirst. He didn't really connect those symptoms back to diabetes, though. By that point, the idea that diabetes caused sweet urine had been forgotten, at least in Britain, where the practice of physicians tasting their patients' urine had fallen out of favor. Whew, boy, am I glad that happened. But in 1674, Thomas Willis did taste a patient's urine while working at Oxford University. And afterward, he coined the term diabetes mellitus. Uh, with mellitus coming from a Latin term for sweet or honeyed. And this was to set the condition apart from diabetes insipidus, which is also associated with excessive thirst and urination, but is related to salt rather than sugar. Yeah, diabetes insipidus is a whole separate thing that we are not talking about in this episode at all, beyond what we just said. In 1776, physician Matthew Dobson of Liverpool confirmed something that probably seems really obvious at this point. He evaporated a patient's urine, and what was left behind was a material that was indistinguishable from sugar. So the reason that people were having sweet urine was because there was literally sugar in there. But he made another discovery as well, and that's that the person's blood serum was also sweet. So he was the one that started making that connection, that diabetes was not just about sugar in the urine, it was also about sugar in the blood. In 1778, Thomas Colley was doing an autopsy on someone with diabetes, and he noticed stones and signs of damage to the pancreas. And he suggested that these two things might be related, but that connection didn't really become clear or more widely known until later. In 1856, French physiologist Claude Bernard discovered that the body stores excess glucose in the liver, and he coined the term glycogen for this form of stored sugar. He also discovered that the nervous system played a role in regulating blood sugar. He made these discoveries, as many of these other researchers did, by experimenting on dogs. This was something that really horrified his family. His wife, Marie Francoise, ultimately filed for divorce, took custody of their children, and established an anti-vivisection society in response to his work. She was one of the first of many people to object to the use of experiments on animals that were related to the study of diabetes or to the development of insulin. Then, in the late 1860s, while he was still in medical school, Paul Langerhans made a big step in discovering the connection between diabetes and the pancreas. Today, we know that the pancreas plays a role in both the digestive and the endocrine systems. When it comes to digestion, the pancreas excretes digestive enzymes that make their way through ducts into the small intestine. As an endocrine gland, the pancreas secretes several hormones, including insulin. But when Langerhans started his research, people knew very little about the microscopic structures of the pancreas or what those structures did. 
his work really started to change that. In his thesis on the pancreas, he described nine different types of cells, and at least two of them had not been described before. One was a type of acinar cell, which secretes digestive enzymes. And he wasn't really sure what the other cells were for, but he observed that they were clumped together in the pancreas in these little groups. Langerhans published his thesis in 1869. In 1893, a French histophysiologist named Edouard Laguesse observed the same cells, and he named them for Lagerhans. Laguesse also theorized that these cells might secrete something that removed glucose from the urine. At this point, people had theorized that some organs might secrete some kind of chemicals that worked in the body somehow, but the word hormone had not been coined yet. In between, when Langerhans described these cells and when Laguesse named them the islets of Langerhans, two French researchers made another discovery. In 1884, Louis Valliard and Charles-Louis Xavier Arnozan discovered that if you closed off the main duct of a rabbit's pancreas, the pancreas itself would atrophy. But it appeared that only the acinar cells atrophied, not the islets of Langerhans. And then the rabbits did not experience the increased appetite and urination and thirst that Bruner had described 200 years before after he partially removed the pancreases of dogs. Five years later, in Germany, Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Mering totally removed the pancreas of a dog, which immediately developed symptoms of severe diabetes, including coma and death. Unlike Brunner, Minkowski and von Mering were able to remove the whole pancreas, and they made the connection between the pancreas and diabetes. So... Through all of this, Western medicine had started to form a basic understanding that diabetes caused elevated sugar both in the blood and in the urine. And it also seemed related to the pancreas, specifically to these islets of Langerhans. And it had some connections to the nervous system and to the liver. Based on this growing knowledge, researchers speculated on a number of potential treatments. At this point, although it was known that diabetes caused sugar in both the blood and the urine, it was much easier to test the urine. Blood tests took a lot longer, and they required so much blood that the tests themselves could be fatal for research animals. So many of these initial studies were focused on outward symptoms, like thirst and urination, as well as how much glucose was in the urine, rather than specifically testing blood. One idea was that diabetes' root cause had something to do with the liver's glycogen storage and that it might be possible to stimulate the nervous system to activate that storage in the liver, or that maybe the liver might be the key to the treatment for diabetes. But a lot of researchers were focusing on the pancreas and whether some kind of pancreatic extract could treat diabetes. Most of these researchers followed the same basic process. They would remove the pancreas of a dog or another animal, which essentially caused it to develop diabetes. And then they would try to treat that animal with an injected pancreatic extract, sometimes from the same animal's pancreas and sometimes from the pancreas of a different animal. This was not the first time that people made extracts from endocrine glands and used them as a treatment for patients who were not producing enough of that particular hormone. The first use of thyroid extract to treat hypothyroidism goes back to at least 1891. Similar use of adrenal extract started in the late 19th century as well, and Jokichi Takamine of Japan isolated and purified adrenaline from cow glands in 1901. 
The methods for preparing this pancreatic extract varied, and for the most part, they were at least somewhat effective in reducing the amount of sugar in a test subject's blood, as shown by the corresponding reduction in sugar in their urine. That's because if you make a pancreatic extract, it's very likely to contain at least some insulin. But it's also hard to separate the insulin from all the other tissues and substances that are part of the pancreas. So overwhelmingly, all these experiments also caused side effects that made the work simply too risky to try in human subjects. This included things like abscesses and other infections and extreme fevers and also shock. The first person known to try this was French physiologist Eugène Glay in the late 19th century. Glay removed the pancreases of dogs and then treated them with injections of a pancreas extract. The injections reduced the dog's thirst and their urine output and also lowered the amount of sugar in the urine. But for reasons that are not clear at all, he stopped his work on the subject in 1890 and then kept his findings sealed until after the discovery of insulin was announced, which was more than 30 years later. Meanwhile, in 1900, pathologist Eugene Lindsay Opie of Johns Hopkins discovered that the islets of Langerhans showed signs of atrophy in patients who had died as a result of diabetes. In 1905, Ernest Henry Starling coined the word hormone, and people began to suggest that the islets of Langerhans were secreting some kind of hormone that lowered blood sugar. Both of these discoveries fed into the ongoing work on pancreatic extracts in animals. George Ludwig Zulzer of Berlin conducted his experiments on rabbits, and he was successful enough that he did try to inject uh, his extract on a dying patient in 1906. Although this did seem to have some positive effect for the patient, the patient's blood and urine weren't tested to confirm it. They were really looking at outward symptoms, and the patient died shortly after Zulzer ran out of his extract. He went on to work with five other human patients, but they all experienced high fevers, vomiting, convulsions, and other serious side effects. As some other examples of this research, Lydia Maria Adams DeWitt did her work with cats in 1906, legating the pancreatic ducts to try to isolate just the islets of Langerhans when preparing her extract. Romanian physician Nicolae Polescu also worked with dogs in 1915 and 1916, developing an extract that he called pancreon before his work was disrupted by World War I. Israel S. Kleiner, whose parents had immigrated to the United States from Bavaria, worked with pancreatic extracts and dogs in 1919. All of this work showed at least some promise, but none of it was safe enough to use as a treatment for diabetes. We'll talk about how people started trying to manage diabetes through diet at about the same time after a sponsor break. The idea that diabetes might be controlled or prevented through diet goes back thousands of years to Sashruta's Vedic medical text that we talked about earlier. But in terms of what people were trying after the medical community started to get a better sense of what was happening inside of the body, one of the first people to suggest a dietary approach was John Rello of Scotland, who became an English army surgeon. And he was doing his work in the earlier years of when people were starting to make physiological discoveries about diabetes. Rollo concluded, incorrectly, that diabetes was a digestive problem in which some kind of stomach issue was causing vegetable matter to break down into excessive sugar. In 1796, he worked with an army captain who had developed what we would know today as type 2 diabetes. 
Rollo recommended a diet that was primarily meat along with some bread, milk, and lime water. The treatment had other components as well, including rubbing the patient's body with lard, producing an external ulceration over each kidney, and wine and opium at bedtime. After a couple of weeks on this regimen, the patient was, according to Rollo, producing less urine, and servants said that his urine was no longer sweet. So he was really not on the right track in terms of diabetes cause, but the diet that he was recommending was closer to correct. Uh, It was low in sugar and other carbohydrates, but there were also physicians who drew the opposite conclusion about how diet might be used to treat diabetes. In Paris in the 1850s, Pierre-Adolphe Curie recommended a high-sugar, high-calorie diet, reasoning that patients were excreting so much sugar in their urine that they would need to eat more of it to replace it. Unfortunately, this approach was absolutely the opposite of what needed to be done, and it contributed to at least one patient's death. Ooh, that's terrifying. Uh, Apollinaire Bouchardin, who was living in Paris at about the same time as Piori, took a dietary approach that was closer to Rollo's. He recommended a diet that was high in fat, but low in sugar and other carbohydrates. He also recommended that patients fast periodically and that they exercise. Bouchardat did a lot of other work in the field of diabetes research as well. He is sometimes called the father of diabetology. Moving into the 20th century, two doctors built on Bouchardat's recommendations and formulated the most well-known and widely used diets for people with diabetes in the years just before insulin was developed. This was Frederick Madison Allen and Elliot Proctor Jocelyn, and they started in about 1915. Allen came to his conclusions about diet by working with depancreatized dogs, and he recommended a low-calorie, low-carb diet that included intermittent fasting. These and similar diets were so restrictive that they were often described as starvation diets. I have read some articles that say they were derisively called starvation diets, but no, that's literally what people called them as a matter of course. And here is how it worked from uh, the starvation treatment of diabetes with a series of graduated diets used at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which was published in 1916. And then the text uh, includes, quote, For 48 hours after admission to the hospital, the patient is kept on ordinary diet to determine the severity of his diabetes. Then he is starved and no food allowed save whiskey and black coffee. The whiskey is given in the coffee. One ounce of whiskey every two hours from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. This furnishes roughly about 800 calories. The whiskey is not an essential part of the treatment. It merely furnishes a few calories and keeps the patient more comfortable while he is being starved. This manual recommends bouillon or a clear soup if whiskey isn't desirable and recommends that the patient be given bicarbonate of soda if they show signs of acidosis. And that's one of the potential complications of diabetes in which acids start to build up in the body. The starvation process continued until the patient's urine had no sugar in it. Then food would be slowly reintroduced, quote, to the limit of tolerance. In other words, doctors would gradually give patients more calories and carbohydrates each day until sugar reappeared in the urine, and then they would reduce that amount until it went away again. This particular publication includes case studies for several adults whose diets were adjusted over a period of roughly one to two weeks as doctors figured out how many grams of carbohydrates they could consume every day while still not having any sugar in their urine. 
most of the patients wound up with diets that included between 15 and 50 grams of carbohydrates per day, between 25 and 60 grams of protein, and between 150 and 200 grams of fat. And that added up to a roughly 2,000-calorie diet on average among these adult patients. Type 2 diabetes is also associated with weight, although, as we said earlier, it can develop in people regardless of their weight. And in general, this manual recommends that adult patients lose weight. The approach in children was a little different, though. Reading from the same book, quote, diabetes in children is likely to be a good deal more severe than it is in adults. Still, in the few cases that have been treated with the starvation treatment at the children's hospital, the results have been very satisfactory as far as rendering the patient sugar-free is concerned. Most diabetic children, however, are thin and frail, and they have no extra weight to lose. So it does not seem so desirable to bring about any very great loss of weight, which is quite an essential part of the treatment for most adults. The few children that have been treated have borne starvation remarkably well. It is too early, and we have seen too few children treated by this method to say what influence it may have on the course of the disease, but it can certainly be said that it is very efficacious in rendering them sugar-free. So here's the daily food intake of a 12-year-old girl who was admitted to the hospital in 1915 after she went through the starvation process and then was discharged with a new diet. Bacon, four slices— Oatmeal, four tablespoonfuls. Bread, one slice. Meat, one ounce. Cabbage, five tablespoonfuls. Spinach, five tablespoonfuls. String beans, five tablespoonfuls. Butter, two ounces. Uh, This child's description of, of her diet ends with the note, quote, a rather mild case which responded readily to treatment. The question is, can she grow and develop on a diet which will keep her sugar free? A six-year-old boy was also discharged on this diet. String beans, three tablespoonfuls. Spinach, four tablespoonfuls. Bacon, four slices. Butter, two ounces. Eggs, three. Bread, one-half slice. Cereal, two tablespoonfuls. Meat, three ounces. This particular book was written about patients who came to the hospital in 1915, and the book came out in 1916, so it doesn't really include anyone's long-term results or prognosis. In terms of the children, though, it does report one patient whose condition was critical when they arrived at the hospital and who died during the starvation period, as well as one who seemed to be doing well but died suddenly a few months after being discharged. These two children's diets that we just gave as examples totaled 1,510 calories for the first and 1,402 calories for the second. But as we said at the top of the show, diet alone is not enough to control glucose levels in type 1 diabetes. These children's bodies needed insulin but could not make it. So over time, a lot of children who were on one of Alan's or Jocelyn's diets were given fewer and fewer calories every day as they inevitably showed signs of sugar in their urine. Sometimes they would have like a full day of fasting to try to reset their bodies. Patients were routinely on diets of 800 calories a day or less with a day of total or near total fasting if any glucose appeared in their urine. This breaks my heart seeing all of this limited calorie diet for kids who need all of the nutrients that they could possibly get to grow and finish their bodies forming. Um, Because these were so restrictive, these diets were very hard for patients to maintain. 
Even if they could and their urine stayed free of glucose, the children's bodies in particular were experiencing other negative effects as a result of just not having enough nourishment. Basically, children were described as wasting away on these diets, which may have, at best, prolonged their lives by a few months to a couple of years. They were often emaciated and weak and prone to infections, while their growth was delayed because they just weren't getting enough nourishment to simply survive. And whether these diets actually did prolong their lives is not entirely clear. There are just so many variables involved in type 1 diabetes, it's hard to say whether this worked or not. In many doctors' views, these diets were a desperate effort to prolong children's lives just a little bit longer with the hope that they would hang on long enough to see and benefit from the discovery of a more effective treatment. And Jocelyn's words, quote, we literally starved the child and adult with the faint hope that something new in treatment would appear. It was no fun to starve a child to let him live. That better treatment, though, was finally found in 1922. And we're going to talk about that on the next episode. Uh, So that is sort of a cliffhanger. But also that means uh, it's time for listener mail. It is time for listener mail. This is from Dan, and Dan wrote in to say, I loved the recent Six Impossible Episodes podcast on civil actions. I actually gasped when you mentioned Julius's. I'm a journalist and frequently write about LGBTQ history. Stonewall was a pivotal moment, but it's so important to understand how much work was done before then. And the sip-in is one of those key moments leading to the removal of the New York Liquor Board's ban on serving alcohol to homosexuals. But I'm writing because I wanted your readers to know that not only is Julius still open, but it's a wonderful bar that welcomes everyone. It opened in the 1860s, and by the 1950s, it was widely known as a gay hangout, popular with Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, and Rudolf Nureyev. There's a press clipping from Walter Winchell on the wall. It's largely the same as it was when the sip-in happened, with photos and memorabilia from that era. They have a monthly party, Mattachine, named after the historic Mattachine Society. Unlike the Woolworths lunch counters and other venues, Julius's is one of the few places involved in America's civil rights struggle that still exists in its original form, not as a museum or a monument, but as a living, breathing space for community celebration and joy. I urge anyone coming to New York to hop down to the village to visit this one-of-a-kind watering hole. Their burgers are to die for. Thanks for all you do. Sincerely, Dan. Thank you so much, Dan, for writing. I, of course, did not have all of this detail in the outline ever, um, but I did at one point have that, like, the Julius's is still open and it welcomes everyone now, um, as opposed to sort of what happened on the day with the Mattachine Society sip-in. But that Six Impossible episodes felt like it was getting quite long, and I made some cuts for length, and that was one of the, the details that was sadly cut out. So thank you so much, Dan, for writing in and giving me the chance to add that today. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at historypodcasts at iheartradio.com. And then you'll also find us all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you will find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.